The scripture passage we're going to be looking at this morning is found in 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings 18. There is a mistake in your bulletin. The passage in your bulletin is actually 1 Kings 18, so uh, don't follow along there if you have a Bible or grab one of the pew Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 18. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 37. Second Kings 18, verses 13 through 37. Give your attention, please, to God's holy word. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh, with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah and Shebna and Joah, said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall, who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us, 
and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of you his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered this, his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Eva? Have they de- delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But the people were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Forgive me if you've heard this story before. It's a sermon illustration that has been told over and over and over again by preachers for well over a century, so there's a pretty good chance you've heard it somewhere along the line. But like any good story, it's a good story because it's effective. That's why it gets retold all the time. It's about a French tightrope walker who lived in the mid-1800s named Charles Blondin. And Blondin's uh, claim to fame is that he not only once, but many times, walked across a tightrope that was connected over the Niagara Gorge, the gorge that goes from Niagara Falls, New York, to Canada. You know, the big gorge that is right next to Niagara Falls. He crossed that on a tightrope many times. But it's not just that he made it across there on a tightrope. That's impressive enough. But it's how he did it. One time he did it while he was blindfolded. Another time he did it while he was on stilts. One time he did it while carrying his manager on his back. And one of the times he's most known for is when he actually wheeled a wheelbarrow full of potatoes across the tightrope from one side to the other. Now as the story goes, and this is where it may get a little legendary, but as the story goes, when he got to the other side of the tightrope with the wheelbarrow, he said to the wildly cheering crowd, he said to them, do you believe that I could carry a person in this wheelbarrow across the tightrope? And the crowd was so impressed, like, absolutely, yes, yes, absolutely, you could do it, you can do it. Well, you know what he said next. Who wants to go first? And nobody raised a hand. Well, the reason that that story is told over and over again is because it very effectively communicates the distinction between believing in someone and trusting in someone. It's easy in theory to believe that somebody is able to do something for you. It's a whole other thing to really trust another person and their abilities to do something for you. We saw last week in the beginning of chapter 18 that King Hezekiah was one of the greatest kings among all of the kings of the history of God's people in Israel and Judah. 
He was a man after God's own heart, a man who reigned and ruled and lived in the steps of his father David. He led the most comprehensive reformation in the worship practices and religious life of the people of God that ever was in the history of Judah and Israel. And it led to a great revival among God's people. And we saw last week that his defining characteristic that the writer of scripture points to over and over again, and he'll continue to do it for several chapters as we go through this study, it was his trust in the Lord. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. He really trusted. It's the, let me remind you of how it was described back in verses 5 through 7 in the passage we looked at last week. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. We said last week that in the original Hebrew, the word trust there, literally to translate it, would say he leaned all his weight on the Lord. And remember, I used the illustration of ice on a pond. It's like jumping on the ice without having to know, have it tested in advance that it's going to hold you. He leaned all his weight, the whole, all of his hopes, all of his dreams, all of his purposes in life. He leaned it on the Lord. He trusted in him. Well, verse 7 goes on to say that living and reigning in trust, what he did was he rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. As we saw last week, that was a bold move because Assyria was the great world power of the time, a vicious, violent nation that did horrific things to the people that it conquered. But he did it because he trusted in the Lord to protect and provide. You would think that if man were writing the story here and not God, that the story would go on to talk about how blessed Hezekiah's life and ministry and reign was, how he reigned in a time of great prosperity and God drove away all his enemies and they gave him bumper crops in the harvest and life was just easy and prosperous and peaceful. You would think that that's how the story would go on because he trusted in the Lord so much, but that isn't how it proceeds, is it? It's not at all what happens. Matter of fact, what happens is that the king of Assyria goes on a strong offensive against all the nations of, of Palestine, what we now call Palestine. And they fell like dominoes. And it says in the text that he actually then proceeded to go all through Judah. And he conquered fortified city after fortified city to the point where the story picks up here. He's right at the doorstep of Jerusalem. He's surrounding Jerusalem with an army that numbers, and we'll look at the numbers later, it was huge powerful army surrounding Jerusalem. But wait, he trusted in the Lord. How can this be? There's a life lesson for us here. One of the lessons we're going to get, and this one we get right away, is that faith is not a shield from trials and tribulations. It's not a shield. Faith is not like the force in the Star Wars movies or the magic in Harry Potter books. It's not something if you just have enough of it, know enough about it, and can employ it well enough that you can get everything you want in life. That's not how faith works because it's not faith in ourselves. It's not faith in some supernatural power. It's faith in a person. It's faith 
in the creator of the universe, its faith in a redeemer, its faith in his sovereign will. You know, it is patently true. If you're, if you're a believer, if you've walked with the Lord very long, you know that after a great victory in life, a, a spiritual high, a mountaintop experience, often Satan attacks. He attacks your faith, usually, at times like that, and that's very common. But more than that, the Lord is sovereign, and Satan can't do a thing to us that the Lord doesn't allow. And so the Lord puts trials and tribulations into our lives for what purpose? To strengthen our faith. And so that's what happens to this trusting king, is the Lord tests him. And we're going to see that he gives him four tests of his trust, four different angles that Satan attacks by God's sovereign will, that Satan attacks his trust in the Lord. First of all, I need to remind you that what it says about Hezekiah in verses 5 through 7, where it talks about how much he trusted in the Lord and how he held fast to the Lord and obeyed the Lord, keep in mind that that was an overall summary of his life and reign. That doesn't mean that he never failed or wavered. Certainly he did, and we see it actually in the first test that he faces. And that's the question that was posed to him basically here in this situation. Will Hezekiah trust in the Lord Will he trust in diplomacy and negotiation? Look at verse 14. Hezekiah does there what any weak, outgunned king would have done in his shoes. He tries to buy his way out of trouble. He apologizes to the king of Assyria. For what? For not submitting to him. For not claiming allegiance to him. He apologizes to the king of Assyria for that. And then he offers to pay him whatever tribute... He demands in order to keep the the king of Assyria from wiping his country off the map. To do it, it says here that he had to empty out the treasuries of the royal palace and empty out the treasuries of the temple. And that wasn't even enough. He had to, he had just redone the, the doors and the doorposts of the temple with gold. He had to strip all that gold off and send that to the king of Assyria as well. Instead of trusting in the grace and protection and providence of the Lord, Hezekiah trusted in the grace and favor of King Sennacherib of Assyria. There's a lesson here for us. We constantly, day in and day out, face the temptation to trust in the earthly powers that be, the people who pull the strings, the people who control our lives on this fallen planet, We put our trust in them. We appeal to them to get what we want in life, to protect us. We look to the government to be our provider and a protector. Not that it doesn't have any role in that, but we look to it. We trust in the government to provide. Or maybe we look to our employer that we trust. We truly trust in our employer. We don't realize it. In a secure job, you don't realize you're actually a lot of times trusting and relying on that paycheck and your raise at the end of the year and your Lord, your, your Lord employer to, to provide for you. If you're a student, you're looking to your teacher, your advisor. Now these are people that we need to work with and we do have to offer submission to, but it gets back, and there are hard heart questions being asked in this passage. Am I trusting in the Lord while also working under the authorities in my life and the powers that be? Or am I really trusting in them 
to meet my needs and to provide my meaning and purpose in life. The king of Assyria was not to be trusted. And so what he does is he takes Hezekiah's money and then he sent a delegation of his high, highest ranking officers to Jerusalem, to the walls of Jerusalem, right outside the city, and he demands absolute, complete, immediate surrender. It says in verse 17, the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh were sent by Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, to meet with Hezekiah. Those aren't names. Thankfully, for their sake, they aren't names. Um, they're not proper names. They're military titles. If you have the NIV in front of you, it translates it's the supreme commander, the chief officer, and field commander. Those are guesses. We don't really know for sure what those titles referred to, but they were military leaders and it seems to be in order of rank that the Tartan was the most uh, high-ranking of his officers. And the lowest of the three, even though they are all high-ranking officers, the lowest of the three was the Rabshakeh, who does all the speaking. And that's because he was the press secretary for the king of Assyria, so to speak. He was the one who would deliver the words of the king to his enemies. Hezekiah then, of course, sends out his delegation. And here's where we have the diplomacy, the negotiation. Now, diplomacy and negotiation aren't inherently wrong. Whether, whatever that looks like in your life or whether countries do that, it's not necessarily wrong, but are you relying upon it? Are you trusting in it? Is that where your confidence comes from? It's from diplomacy and negotiation with the people who control your life, the people who you serve. Where does your trust lie? That's the first test that Hezekiah had to face. The second test of trust was dealt with this question. First of all, will Hezekiah trust in the Lord or will he trust in his strategies and his preparations? Look at verse 20. Sennacherib's first challenge through the Rabshakeh was this. Do you think that mere words are, are strategy? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In other words, what he's saying is, I see what you're doing. I see that you're preparing Jerusalem for a siege from our armies. It's all empty words. It's all empty plans. It's all worthless. You're wasting your time, is what he's saying. If they were on the basketball court, this would be called trash talk. Psychological warfare has been around since the beginning of humanity, where you try to get into your opponent's head, shake his confidence, break down his trust, Cause him to doubt. He even makes a mocking wager in verse 23. You have to, if you read this out loud, you have to read it with a mocking tone. The entire thing is meant to be ridiculing Hezekiah and those who represent him. Verse 23 says, I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. I mean, I'll give you 2,000 horses to help your effort. But... I don't think you even have 2,000 soldiers to put on them to fight with us. What's interesting is you get more of the story. As I said last week, there are parallel accounts over in Chronicles. And in 2 Chronicles 32, we get a little more information about this confrontation. What we find out there is that both before and during these negotiations, Hezekiah was preparing the people of Jerusalem for a major long-term military siege. He, it says there that he stopped up all of the springs of water around the city. Why would he do that? It was to keep 
when they, the siege happened and the, the Assyrian armies are planted around the city for months on end, it was so that they would have no water sources. It was a, a defensive um, measure. He also, it says in Second Chronicles 32, he repaired all the walls of Jerusalem and he even built onto them and actually added walls to strengthen certain areas of the city. And so he shored up the defenses immensely. He also organized his small army and he had a lot of weapons and shields made. So he's preparing for battle. Now again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Matter of fact, I think in this case he probably did the right thing. He didn't know how the Lord was going to deliver. And so he prepared to go to war. He prepared for the siege. It wasn't necessarily the lack of trust. Matter of fact, I think he was trusting the Lord while he was doing it. I know this because if you go over to 2 Chronicles 32, I'm going to read to you a couple of verses that, that are part of a speech that Hezekiah made to his small army as they faced the armies of Assyria. And I wish I could say it with a Scottish brogue, because this would suit William Wallace very well as he rode his horses in front of the troops in Braveheart. These are words better than William Wallace's words. Listen to what he says. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. One of the great military speeches of all time. So he was trusting in the Lord. So, I mean, the point that we need to make here is that faith and trust in the Lord doesn't mean that you don't do what's within your, what he's allowed you, the resources he's given you, to do the right thing. Trust in the Lord doesn't mean passivity. Trust in the Lord doesn't mean sitting in your easy chair and sipping lemonade while you wait for the Lord to drop deliverance out of the heavens that's not what trust is we are expected to work hard toward goals that please the Lord that's what's expected of us if you're a student if you're an employee if you're a son or a daughter you're supposed to work hard in your calling you all have a calling from the Lord and it requires great sacrifice in your effort to be faithful in your calling but again this passage is asking us to dig a little deeper and say What am I trusting in? Am I trusting in my efforts at school or my efforts on the job or my efforts in the family or am I trusting in the Lord? And that's a hard line to discern at times in our hearts. Whether you're working towards a degree or seeking a promotion at work or raising a family or saving for retirement, think about it. There's a lot of people in later stages of life. That's a real valid question. Am I by saving money and putting money in my 401k and in my pension plan and, you know, making these investments? Am I just doing what the Lord would have me do to prepare for my future years and my family? Or am I trusting in these things and finding my security in these things? And that's a really valid question for people at that stage of life. It's an important question that this passage would have us ask. Hezekiah's third test of trust was somewhat similar to the first one in terms of negotiation and diplomacy, but it actually takes it a step further. Would Hezekiah trust in the Lord, or would he trust in worldly alliances? Look at verse 21. The Rabshakeh, speaking for Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, says, Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. We know that 
Hezekiah was very tempted to send out a delegation to the Pharaoh in Egypt promising to serve Pharaoh if he would come and defend Jerusalem against Assyria because many nations had done that. And so, you know, that's the way it was in this day and age. That's the way the geopolitical situation was, is that Egypt was the other world power. Now, Assyria was the up-and-coming world power. It was the, the hip world power. It was the trendy one. It was the one that was gaining more and more power. And Egypt was old yesterday's news. I mean, it was the, the, uh, the world power that was, and it was on its down side it was on its decline and you know that politics in the middle east in this time this age was kind of like being the little skinny kid on the playground with two big bullies you know you you need you want to throw your your trust and your reliance upon the right one and if you pick the wrong one you're really going to get beat up and that's really what was going on here and so the king of assyria the big bully he, he calls Egypt a broken reed. You know, of course, Egypt was known for reeds because the Nile River was full of reeds. And so he uses that as a metaphor. He said, yeah, Egypt was a strong reed at one time, but now it's broken. And you know what a broken reed looks like? It's got a very sharp point. And so if somebody leans on a broken reed, they're going to get their hand pierced. And so that's the metaphor. Saying to Hezekiah, if you put out a call to Egypt to come and deliver you, you're going to not only not get the help you need, but you're going to get destroyed much worse. That's his, his threat. Again, the question was, what's Hezekiah going to lean on? Where was he going to throw his whole weight and trust in the situation? And what's interesting to me is that the prophet Isaiah, and we know, we said last week, that the prophet Isaiah was prophesying to Hezekiah during this whole period. And the prophet Isaiah had said very similar things to Hezekiah that the king of Assyria is saying to him. Don't trust in Egypt. Don't put out a call to Egypt. Don't rely on that worldly power. Let me give you a couple examples from Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. And then over in chapter 31, verse 1, says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. It's not a whole lot different from what Assyria was saying, at least initially. Don't trust in Egypt. But isn't that how Satan works? Satan rarely tells bold-faced lies to us. He rarely does that. What he tends to do is take the truth and twist it. He tends to take the truth and corrupt it. He takes the truth and adds lies to it. Or he takes the truth and takes truth away from it. And the truth he's taken away from it in this situation is what Isaiah was saying to Hezekiah was, trust in the Lord. Don't trust in either one of these bullies. Trust in the Lord. But the king of Assyria is saying, no, trust in me. I'm the one with the power. Don't trust in Egypt. That'll be to your destruction. Matter of fact, that idea of mixing truth with the lies, that hiss of Satan that were in the words, you hear it all the way. As you're reading these words of the Rabshakeh, you're hearing the hiss of Satan all through it. Tempting, enticing Hezekiah and the people in Jerusalem not to trust in the Lord, but to cast their trust upon him. 
That's how Satan works. He wants us to doubt God's word. That's what he did to Adam and Eve. He said, has God really said this? Can you trust God's words? And if you can't trust God's words, can you trust his intentions? That's what Satan said to Christ as he was in the wilderness. Here's what God's word says. Are you going to really trust him? He proved to me that you're going to trust him. He was distorting what the word of God actually said. This is why the church, I think the church is being tested right now. The church of Jesus Christ in America, we're facing a country that is badly, badly broken. And we've got political parties that are calling out to the church saying, no, trust me, no, trust me, no, trust me. We've got to be very careful that we don't enter into alliances with worldly powers that be, with worldly systems to try to accomplish goals, even if they're good goals. We need to trust the Lord. Now, do I know what that looks like perfectly? No. But it's something we have to wrestle with. We trust in the Lord, not in a political party. We trust in the Lord, not in a political candidate. We trust in the Lord. And we need to be careful where our heart is in this difficult time. Then we come to Hezekiah's fourth test. The test of his trust. Would Hezekiah trust in the Lord or would he trust in worldly theology? Worldly theology. It's interesting. He goes a little deeper and gets to the soul of things. In verse 22, the Rabshakeh knows that Hezekiah's religious reforms, this reformation that he had just carried out, it was all fresh. It all just happened. He had just gotten rid of all of the Asherah poles and the pillars, the the idols, the the false worship centers, the false worship altars. He had just gotten rid of all of it. And you have to know that there were many people in Jerusalem that were angry about it. They loved their idols. They loved their false altars. And so those are the people, many of them who were soldiers on the wall of Jerusalem listening to this interchange, between Rabshakeh and the representatives of Hezekiah. You know, listen to what the Rabshakeh says. He says, if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? You see what he's implying? He's implying that Hezekiah is not on the side of the Lord. That Hezekiah's reforms, actually he implies, you'll notice there, he implies that he wants everybody to come to the temple in Jerusalem in order to centralize power. That's what he's implying. That he has malicious intent in going about these religious reforms. And so he's asking the people, he's he's trying to sow seeds of doubt in the people to say, do you really trust Hezekiah? Is he really trusting in the Lord or does he have selfish motivation in what he's done? And he's causing the question, should the altar have been taken away? Were these false worship sites really false worship sites? He's sowing seeds of doubt about who God really is and what God has said and what's the right way to approach him in worship. In verse 25, he says, Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Wow. Do you know he's quoting scripture there? See, again, he's taking something that was true and then he's twisting it. Because it is true that the prophet Isaiah said that the Lord would send the evil empire of Assyria against Israel and against Judah to discipline and to judge his people. He said that. Matter of fact, if you don't believe me, I'll give you the direct quote from Isaiah chapter 10, verses uh, 
Verses 5 and 6, first of all, he says, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But, again, he left out a very important part of God's word. He should have kept reading, because it says in verse 12, When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. You see, he was going to break the rod of discipline that he used against his people, and he would destroy Assyria after he had served, they had served his purposes. So again, he's twisting the word of God. And at this point, Hezekiah's delegation pleads with the Rabshakeh. He says, stop speaking in Hebrew. The people on the wall can hear you. They were fearful that all these seeds of doubt were going to destroy Hezekiah's support among the people for good reason. He says, they said, please speak in Aramaic. Now, Aramaic, we know Aramaic from New Testament times, but in this era, the common people in Jerusalem didn't speak Aramaic. It was a, a diplomatic language, kind of a language of commerce for the Middle East of that era. And so he's saying, you know, speak in the diplomatic language so we understand you, but so these people won't hear these, these horrendous claims that you're making and the, and the challenges to their their faith in Hezekiah. But what does the Rabshakeh do? <laughs> he keeps speaking in Hebrew and raises his voice so they can hear him easier. And listen to what his offer was. This is so satanic. He says, do not listen to Hezekiah when he says, trust in the Lord. Make your peace with me and come out to me. He hissed. He offers them a choice. He says, you can trust in the Lord and then face the consequences, which after a very long siege would mean, he says, eating your own dung and drinking your own urine. How's that for a powerful image of defeat? Or you can come out, surrender, make yourself a part of the great Assyrian empire, and we will allow you to live. Not only that, we'll let you have your own figs and your grape and your fresh water. We'll let you have it all, and then we'll take you away to Assyria, to the other part, another part of the world, and there we'll give you wine and honey and bread, and you know, you'll just live the good life. He hissed. There have always been voices among the powers that be in our lives that say that God's people need to get with the spirit of the age. God's people need to get on the right side of history. God's people need to compromise their values and update their theology and become more relevant to the world. But the word of God never changes. God never changes. He alone is worthy of our trust. And so the people were silent and answered him not a word, it says in verse 36. You see, this is the hissing voice of the evil one in every age. On what do you rest this trust of yours? But it's a question I want you to ask yourself this morning. On what do you rest this trust of yours? Is the Lord of the Scriptures worthy of your trust? The Rabshakeh was so arrogant, so cocky, so secure in the power of Assyria in that moment but it was soon to turn to dust and blow away, we know from history. 
You know, when you look at his arrogant claims in the light of history, you know who he reminds me of? Baghdad Bob. You remember Baghdad Bob? He was the Iraqi information minister who was the spokesman for Saddam Hussein. And he was mocked around the world because as the Allied troops were coming into the country and destroying the Iraqi army, he would go on camera and make the most outlandish, extravagant claims for about the invincibility of the Iraqi army and about the imminent destruction of the Allied forces. And even you could see the the fires and the smoke in the city behind him, and he'd be claiming all the great victories that the Iraqi army had won that day. That's what the Rabshakeh sounds like to me as I read this text. He sounded so cocky, so arrogant, so confident as he mocked the people of God and the God that they trusted in. But he would soon be shown to be in the same category as Baghdad Bob. Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? And it goes on to say, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord was laughing at the Rabshakeh that day. We should be able to reflect that in the way that we stand for truth in an age where it's getting challenged and, refu- and, and, and argued against every moment. We should have that same confidence. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It's jumping on the feet with both feet onto the ice. Being confident in the one whom you cannot see, in the promises of the one whom you cannot see, in the power of the one whom you cannot see. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. You see, that's why it it really does not suit us well as the church of Jesus Christ when we whine and get angry when the world boasts against us. When the world says that what we believe is silly. When the world says that what we believe is just superstition and, and, and antiquated, we should not get angry. We should not whine. Because the word of God is true. And we've put all of our hopes, dreams, all of our investments in our lives, we've put it upon the word of God and the promises of the word of God being true. Anger And whining betrays insecurity about what we believe. Psalm 2 goes on to say, I have set my king on Zion. Why is the one in heaven laughing at all the boasts of the world powers? Because God the Father says, I have set my king on Zion. Jesus Christ is the perfect example of trust. Hezekiah was a great example of trust, but he had many, many failings because he was a sinner like you and me. But Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was fully human, but he was also fully God. And in his humanity, he came and lived in the midst of us, and he showed us what perfect trust in the Lord looks like. When Satan twisted God's word in the wilderness to entice him to doubt and disobey, he stood calmly and corrected Satan and stood firm in his faith and obedience. When Jesus Christ stood before the mocking arrogance of the Pharisees and King Herod and Pilate, Jesus Christ either did not answer, just as the people on the walls 
were obedient and didn't answer. He didn't answer these boasts, these anti-Christ things that were being said. Or he very calmly and confidently declared his trust in the Father and in his word. And then having never distrusted and never disobeyed, he allowed himself to be sacrificed on the cross in our place. He bore the wrath of God that all of our distrust and all of our disobedience deserved. And then he was raised from the dead. And that resurrection from the dead guaranteed that the price for our sins had been paid and that we had been forgiven, that we had been reconciled to our creator and that on the day of judgment, as Kayla said, we are going to stand there and Christ's righteousness is going to be given to us. His trust in the Lord, his righteousness based on that trust will be given to us as a gift and we will be accepted by the Father and given the gift of eternal life in his perfect kingdom. You see, that's the answer to the question of the text. The question is, what will we rest our trust upon? And that's the one thing. If you truly know God through Christ, that's the one thing you rest your trust upon. Christ died for my sins. He's raised from the dead. And he's coming back to bring my salvation to completion. And we know that that means in this life we will suffer. We have no promises of deliverance from trials and tribulations in this life. Matter of fact, our Lord Jesus Christ promised us that we will face trials and tribulations for his name. But that's not what we rest our, tr our, our trust in. We don't rest our trust on anything in this life. We rest our trust upon our risen Savior. Let me close by reading Peter, the Apostle Peter's summary of everything we've been talking about this morning. Listen carefully to what he says in his first chapter of his first epistle. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of Hezekiah, but more than that, thank you that his example points us to the risen one, the one who has made promises that he will keep, for he is able. He has conquered sin and death, our worst enemies. We are secure in him. Father, may our faith be strengthened. May our fears be taken away as we look to Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.